Hello, my name is Philip Camilla, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. We have a good uh, show for everybody today. I'm very happy to have on the show Professor Michael Behe, uh, who teaches biochemistry at Lehigh University, and we're going to be talking about his, his new book, just came out this year, it's called Darwin Devolves, The New Science About DNA That Challenges Evolution. And so I don't think there's any doubt that along with Albert Einstein, Charles Darwin is probably one of the two most famous scientists of the modern age. His theory of evolution has dominated biology for over a century, and it's difficult to read a newspaper, much less a biology textbook, without some reference to how evolution explains an aspect of the living and even the non-living world. Uh, a quick uh, search on Amazon this morning, I saw that there are over 40,000 books with evolution in the title. Evolution dominates our society and it dominates biology. To believe in evolution and to honor Darwin with the awe and respect due a religious leader are almost necessary conditions for being considered a civilized, rational human being. If you question uh, Darwin, you, uh, you have some people question your sanity. But here's the problem. How many people actually understand what Darwin said or what the theory of evolution actually means? And in fact, as more and more people are recognizing, the closer one looks at the theory, the more questions are raised. And to my mind, it comes down to this. The problem comes down to this. To the naked eye, this universe seems to be obviously designed. There's a recent book uh, that... Uh, I would also recommend, uh, along with uh, Mr. Uh, Professor Behe's book by Douglas uh, Axe called Undeniable, where he, he uses the concept of intuition to conclude that our, our sense, our inner sense, our gut tells us there's obviously a design. So how do you get to a design universe without a designer? Darwin said through natural selection, modern Darwinians frame it along the lines of natural selection molds random mutations into the design of life. We have Richard Dawkins with this famous book, The Blind Watchmaker, trying to explain how a universe of unlimited design can be put together by a blind, by the blind processes of random mutations. But at the same time, we're having this conflict between really what orthodox biologists say about evolution, and on the other hand, we're having 
a growing list of credentialed scientists raising questions about the completeness, the credibility of of Darwinianism. We know that all designs begin with an idea in mind. So how do we get to our design universe without a mind? And that is the topic of today's show. It's also one of the topics of Professor Behe's book, Darwin Devolves. Uh, Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great great to be here. Yeah, uh, I, but no, go right ahead. No, no, I pre- I appreciate it. And this is this is one of these occasions where where we have uh, somebody like like yourself, Professor, who I, I really think is the leader in the academic community and really in the scientific community who has put together the strongest case uh, against against Darwin. And so uh, I want to get into your, your new book a little bit, but, but, but before we do that, can you just tell the, the listeners a little bit about how you went from, uh, I, I believe you were raised Catholic and you, uh, you have a degree in, I think, biochemistry, how you went from really being on the orthodox side into who you are today. What Was there a triggering, was there a, 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 a triggering point here or something that occurred in your career that got you thinking about this whole, this whole well, question about Darwin? Yeah, and actually I read a book. <laughs> As you say, I was raised Catholic, still am, and in Catholicism at least, uh, uh, people are, you know, cool with evolution, even with Darwinism, thinking, well, maybe, you know, God made the universe, but he may have just made natural laws to produce life, and, you know, who are we to to tell him otherwise? And, you know, that was fine with me. Uh, And, of course, I, all during my uh, college, uh, graduate school education and so on, everybody believed in Darwinian evolution and was taken for granted. Um, so that, that's, I was, uh, I thought Darwinian evolution was true, was well supported. <laughs> and then I read a book in the mid 1980s, uh, called evolution, a theory and crisis by a man named Michael Denton. And at that point in my career, I was a, an associate professor at Lehigh with tenure, uh, and, um, uh, so I was uh, well into my career, and Denton, who was a geneticist, uh, then living in Australia, and a medical doctor, he wrote about a number of problems with Darwin's theory that I had never thought about, I had never heard of, heard nobody discuss in, in all of my training, uh, and it shocked me, because here I thought there was this unassailable uh, idea uh, in that explained a large chunk of the world, and he was able to offer objections that I had no idea how to answer. And so, after reading the book, I was, went straight over to the science library at, at the college to see who had explained, you know, these intricate uh, systems that one sees as a biochemist. I'm again, I'm a biochemist. And you study the molecular basis of life, and <clears throat> things are very complex and very elegant down there. And uh, it turns out nobody had. 
that Denton was right. Nobody knew how uh, a random mutation plus natural selection could explain uh, much about life. And that that was the turning point in my uh, journey on, on this. I never expected to change, but uh, that changed my mind. And that's been about 30 plus years ago. And I've only gotten more convinced that uh, Denton was right, and uh, Darwinism is is true to a degree, but is hardly the uh, the explanation for life that uh, it's often touted to be. Well, let's let, let's do this for a second, which is um, to make sure that uh, the listener understands uh, the concept. When we say, or when you say Darwinism, or when I say that, uh, can you summarize? what the core principle is of Darwinism that you have problems with? Sure. Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's an excellent question because people can oftentimes get confused by the word evolution, which is kind of ambiguous, has a lot of different meanings, and Darwinism, that's kind of folded in with evolution. But uh, evolution by itself just kind of means in biology, it just means that things have changed over time and uh, that maybe modern animals have somehow descended from previous ones. And that idea was around before Charles Darwin, but it was always thought to be a teleological prop, uh, process. That means that it was directed or there was a purpose to life or purpose to changes in life. Uh, maybe directed by someone, something, or uh, built into nature somehow. Darwin's claim to fame was that he thought he had discovered a process by which apparently purposeful uh, living systems could be built without any direction, without any uh, teleological or intelligent input. And that was, <coughs> excuse me, that was the uh, random variation uh, um, sifted by natural selection. Uh, in, in a nutshell, his theory is that, you know, there's random changes, uh, random fluctuations in the characters of animals and plants uh, each generation. You know, some animal is bigger than average uh, some might be lighter in color, some might be faster. And since there's a struggle to survive, not all animals that are born can survive, then there will be a competition uh, to see who, who can survive. <clears throat> and the one <clears throat> that is fittest, the one whose characteristics allow it to survive best, <clears throat> will... Uh, uh, live longer and probably leave more offspring than the others. And uh, so if it has more offspring and if the offspring inherit inherit that uh, favorable trait, then they'll uh, produce more offspring. And, and over generations, that trait will spread and dominate the population. And then maybe another variation comes along and the same process repeats itself until perhaps the species changes into something altogether different from what it had started as. But the key 
the key characteristic of Darwin's theory is that nobody is directing this. It's just who survives the best, what trait happens to come along. And so it's random and purposeless and mindless. Um, and uh, that is the only uh, aspect of evolution that I disagree with. I don't disagree with common descent or or um, uh, even that there's accidents uh, of biology at you know at a kind of a surface level uh, along the way and even some of them can be favorable but in order to build a coherent complex system it requires direction it requires intelligent planning or uh, direction or input or, or some such thing so it's it's not you know the age of the earth or the fact of common descent that i uh, concern myself with it's the bold claim of darwin that all of the complexity the elegance and so on of life could have arisen without any intelligent input whatsoever yeah i've always i've always thought that uh there there's a fundamental problem with, there's a lot of fundamental problems with, with Darwinism. And I mentioned in my introduction about this concept of intuition. And uh, all of us have this uh, experience of designing something, of, of drawing something. I mean, what, what comes to mind is just watching a painter um, before they actually paint their sketching. They're, they're sketching the idea of, of the drawing, and it, it's and even before that sketch comes out, they are they have this vision of what they want to draw. So they start with the sketch and they fill it in, and it's it's not too much of a it's not too much of a leap to say that the design we see in in the world, not only the, in the living and the non-living world, from snowflakes to the to the Human um, anatomy um, are as are much are are much more uh, designed, intricately designed than a painting than many paintings. And so, to imagine that something of such intricacy was randomly put together is always always seems a stretch. And I don't even know. In fact, I don't think it's possible. But I don't even know whether most people who believe in Darwinism or who accept it as part of the scientific orthodoxy even understand that it's mindless. This is, I mean, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think that, you know, you, you've given a lot of talks and have had a lot of experience out in the public with, with this, with this um, idea here. Do you think the common person understands that this is really a mindless process? Uh, well, not really, no. Uh, uh, it's kind of in the background. That's not emphasized in, uh, in the popular newspapers, magazines, TV shows, and so yeah. on. Yeah. It's, most, it's mostly just that, you know, organisms descended from other ones over a long time. And it, in order to prove Darwinism, for example, a TV show might say, well, look at these uh, feathers that birds have and look we found fossils that uh of dinosaurs that had feathers and hey you know <laughs> well, that proves darwinism well no it doesn't it 
it might prove or it might uh, support the idea of common sense, but it doesn't say anything about how the dinosaurs got their feathers, how these major changes uh, that were necessary to derive uh, birds from from a non-bird uh, species, how they could have happened. So uh, it it doesn't address that at all. Nonetheless, it's implied because uh, usually the folks who peddle these stories will then say, you know, well, uh, well, you know, life isn't isn't evolution wonderful, isn't uh, isn't uh, nature wonderful? As if you know, just the unfolding of nature itself could have could have done this. So, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. The in terms of looking at the mechanism for Darwinianism, uh, and and I and I, I want to move to the social part of this uh, uh, a little later in the show, but right now to 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 drill into your new book a little bit. Um, I've always looked at this uh, as if there's two mechanisms. You have the selection, which Darwin called natural selection, which I think is the common um, description, although I guess the current um, literature, they, they want to remove the word natural because that does sound like there is nature doing some selecting, so they call it selection, but it was really natural selection selecting random mutations. And so you have two things going on here, which is, well, how can a, um, how can random mutations lead to us a, a, a pauperi of options such that a blind process is going to be picking this, this pauperi, this, this, this random collection of quote unquote mutations and make that sort of messiness into something that is designed. Now, now, one thing that when when in my own book, *The Collapse of Materialism*, when you know when I was reading *Origin of the Species*, it caught my attention that Darwin based natural selection upon animal breeders, and clearly, animal breeders are selecting the the choice. You know, the fattest pigs. To breed, or the biggest horses to breed together. There's a, obviously a conscious intent there. So you have a problem. I've always said, yeah, I've always thought there's a problem from the selection standpoint. But let's go to the to the mutation standpoint for a second here, because that's really what you're focused on in Darwin devolves. And and maybe you could just talk about how your ideas developed, such that you started questioning how these random mutations could actually create beneficial organisms and maybe something else is at work. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, again, I'm a biochemist, which is somebody who studies the molecules of, of life. And many people don't realize it, but back in Darwin's day, no, no one knew if molecules or atoms existed. They were theoretical entities back then. It wasn't until the early uh, 1900s when it, there was a consensus that, yeah, atoms and molecules really exist. And the cell back in Darwin's day was, was thought to be a little piece of jelly. It was known to be important, but it was thought to be pretty simple. What they called it 
called it protoplasm. And uh, so nobody had a clue about the foundation of life. They were basing much of their thought on uh, the uh, larger structure of organisms, you know, whether pigeons could, you know, uh, have their shape altered by uh, by selection by humans and so on. So nobody had a clue about the cellular or molecular foundation of life. And in in the past 150 years since Darwin's day, uh, science has discovered that the foundation of life is is hardly just a kind of a bland jelly, but it's a really intricate, uh, astounding, uh, sophisticated, elegant uh, um, uh, uh, organization of, of many, many, many different parts. The cell, uh, again, is more like an automated factory or a city of, uh, of many automated factories that uh, have to uh, put together uh, very uh, uh, intricate systems and rebuild themselves and so on. And so the very foundation of life is is not simple. And that's what Darwin was kind of hoping that kind of some of the problems that he saw for his theory would dissolve as more and more was known about about uh, about how life actually grew and and changed and, and so on. Uh, and if, uh, if you look, as I said, if you look at the foundation of life, science has discovered that it's run by molecular machines, real machines made out of molecules. And like our everyday machines, they have many different parts. For example, there's one that I like to talk about. It's called the bacterial flagellum, which is really an uh, outward motor that some cells can use to swim. It's got a propeller and it's got a motor and it's got clamps to hold it onto the cell and, and many, many other features. Uh, and so if you wanted to build something like that by a random change and then selection, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, extremely hard to see how that could be done because you need pretty much the whole thing together before it works. I, I, coined a term irreducibly complex uh, to describe that. And so if it, uh, if it requires coordinated parts uh, before you get any good effect from it, then you're not, you're not going to build it by random mutation and selection because selection means something that's already working uh, in, order to, uh, in order to select it. So right at the foundation of life, you've got really insuperable problems for uh, this process of random mutation and selection. Yes, so in terms of the concept of uh, Darwin devolves, which is controversial because it's the opposite of what, of what, of what uh, Darwinians say, uh, evolution is supposed to move forward, not backward. And or it's supposed to build things, not destroy things. So, what has your research shown about how these mutations really operate? Well, uh, yeah, um, that's the that's the new and and really astounding thing that has only been discovered in the past decade or two, and 
before the past 20 years or so, uh, scientists could see that, well, every now and then a change comes along in an organism and it helps it. Maybe some plant can adapt itself better to uh, drought or to some uh, pathogen, some, uh, some disease-causing organism that, that feeds on it. And they say, wow, look at that. It's, it's getting better. It's, it can survive when others uh, don't. Uh, so this evolution process is really pretty cool. But they didn't know exactly what was going on to allow it to adapt to change circumstances. They saw that it grew better, but what's going on at the foundational level? Because at the foundational level, we have found that uh, that uh, DNA uh, is the main carrier of genetic information. And so any mutation in an organism has to be a change in its DNA, which means there's a change in a molecule, which is um, uh, what DNA is. And DNA consists of a series of chemical letters, A, C, G, and T, uh, maybe a billion or so long, which carries genetic information. All the genes that uh, when uh, code for, uh, for how the organism's put together. And it was hard to see what the changes were because there's a billion, a billion uh, letters in the DNA and trying to fish out, there might be just one change in all of the billion that leads to the different uh, properties of the organism. But uh, to cut to the chase, in the past 20 years, sophisticated lab methods have been developed that can, in fact, determine the exact changes in many instances of favorable uh, mutations coming along, uh, leading, to, uh, leading to more successful species. And surprisingly, it's turned out that most of those mutations break genes that were already there or degrade them so that they work less effectively than they used to. And that's interesting, uh, but it, it'll never explain how those uh, genes got there in the first place or how sophisticated interactive systems um, uh, got there in the first place. Um, and many people are confused by this. They say, you know, how can breaking something, you know, help uh, an organism survive? Well. I'd like to use an analogy. Uh, so what if your life depended on your car getting better gas mileage? What, what could you do to quickly uh, have, your, have your car go further on a tank of gas? Well, of course, one simple thing to do is take off the hood and throw it away. Take out the back seat and throw it away. You know, lighten the load of the car. Of course, those things are helpful in many circumstances, but if your life depends on you getting better gas mileage right now, then that's the way to go. And things like this happen at the molecular level in biology. For example, in uh, Africa, in a section of Africa, 
uh, well, the malaria, this uh, malaria kills um, uh, many people, particularly in Africa, uh, every year. And the little malarial cell, it's a single cell, which is injected into people by a mosquito bite. It travels along and it attaches itself to a blood cell, a red blood cell, and it has to bind to a particular protein, a particular uh, molecular machine on the surface of a blood cell. And there are uh, there's a group of people in Africa that are missing that molecular machine. They don't make it anymore. And they're, they've got immunity to malaria, even though the machine is useful in many circumstances. If you throw that away, you essentially stymie the malarial cell, and now you've got immunity uh, to disease, uh, even though that uh, might have been useful in its own right uh, on, on uh, the net. The net is that uh, it's better for these people to throw that away and not get malaria than to have it and, and die of the disease. So um, the main point of the book, Darwin Devolves, is that breaking genes can be beneficial in many circumstances. And many of the uh, examples that have been used to support Darwin's theory in the past hundred years or so, when we look at them closely and when we look at them at the molecular level, which we've only been able to do now in the past 10 to 20 years again, uh, we see that they are breaking uh, genes rather than constructing them. So Darwin is is helping. You know, it's better for some uh, those people in Africa that they don't have that uh, particular gene for the molecular machines. But it's helping by devolving, by throwing away things that already had. And um, I argue in the book that that's certainly not a process that you'd expect to build uh, intricate molecular machinery in the first place. Well, well, there, well therein, therein lies the problem, right? Because the Darwin's theory, it sounds, on first blush, it sounds impressive. Just, just to think that, okay, random mutations are molded, you know, I think you used the word sifted, by natural selection to build the uh, the uh, variety of life forms present in the world you know it, it's it's like a it's like something that builds uh, improved organisms not only improved but the diversity we see in the living world so is it is it true that based upon your research and study that you don't think that's possible uh, yeah uh, that's certainly correct as a matter of fact uh, the interesting, well, the point I emphasize in the new book, Darwin Devolves, is that it tends to break such machinery rather than build it, yeah. uh, um, as in the case of those folks in Africa. So it it fools people, or it, it you know even smart folks, because in some cases, again, it's beneficial to get rid of something that's kind of holding you back in, in, cha in a changed environment. 
but uh, but yeah, it it degrades things uh, over time rather than builds them. Well, the the other point here uh, on the random mutations that's always struck me, and I, and this is in my this is in my own book uh, my my own book is that uh, Darwin and and Dawkins I think says uses the same term I think he uses the term toolbox where this if you consider that the the category of mutate of genes DNA as the toolbox from which an organism is going to use to build something better mm. it's always struck me to be remarkable if not unbelievable that this toolbox will contain the features the the feet the coding for the features that are going to be necessary to survive in the living world in the environment that you sort of have to imagine some kind of fixed toolbox why is the tool you know if if it's getting colder then and a bear is in uh, the a northern climate why is it that there's more fur in the toolbox. I mean, it's it's, it's it's sort of it's it's a it's really a odd way of thinking because you've got to assume that there is that that all the right ingredients already are present before they can be put together into something that's beneficial. Right. Yeah. And and there's an even kind of subtler uh, presumption from Dawkins, Richard Dawkins analogy of a toolbox a toolbox uh a intelligent agent uses the tools right. to to do whatever he he has in mind it's not that the tools themselves fall on the floor and somehow right. uh get the job done now it's interesting your your bear that you, you know, just mentioned in the northern climate um you know getting more fur Turns out that I, I speak a little bit about uh, polar bears in in the uh, new book, but uh, just to build on your analogy, one thing you can do is that, um, or one thing Darwinian processes could do if it got colder, uh, is that uh, every system in in living organisms is regulated. That is that uh, a bear. Uh, the DNA of a bear would code for the bear's fur, its color, its density. You know, it it turns on, it allows it to grow, and it stops it at some point. Well, now suppose you broke a control that uh, told the machinery of the cell when there was enough fur uh, and to stop growing that. If you broke that, the the fur would continue to grow and make the bear warmer. And maybe in normal circumstances, the warmer, uh, the warmer fur would be detrimental, but in the cooler circumstances, now it's, it's better. And that's good. That's natural selection will grab onto that and uh, that will help the bear survive. But it did so by breaking some controls in the cell, not yeah. by making them. Yeah. And, and, and I've, I talk about real life cases. That's what happened in, you know, for a number of genes in the polar bear, which is thought to be descended from the grizzly bear, brown bear. 
and uh, it adapted mainly by by breaking genes. Yeah, that that is that's something that science is all about, and that that I think is what makes this uh, topic so interesting because you have folks like you um, who are using the methods of science to challenge scientific orthodoxy. And we, and I, I assume, and I'm, I'm getting to this, I assume that one of your driving um, themes is, is that you are honoring the methods of science as opposed to accepting on faith uh, Darwinianism, right? Is, is that, that's yeah. really what you're doing. You're, you're using the methods of science and you have to have faith that that's the right way to go. And which leads me to my, my next question, which is uh, you published uh, Darwin's Black Box in, looks like it's 1996. And for those who haven't um, read in this area, you have to read Darwin's Black Box. It's really, it's been, um, it's a controversial book, uh, but it's probably the best, if not one of the, or, or one, at least one of the best books in this, in this field. Um, but since you wrote Darwin's Black Box, uh, Professor, 23 years later, you write Darwin Devolves. Now, have you seen any change in the, in, in the acceptance of, of your uh, mindset here, or do you feel like you're fighting against, like, a immovable object? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's more like the immovable object. I mean. Yeah, that's what I kind of thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting, uh, though, in that, since what, 23 years now since Darwin's Black Box, and as I write in an appendix of the current book, Darwin Devolves, uh, the problems that I pointed out back in the day are still unsolved. Nobody has a uh, has a clue how that Darwin's theory of evolution might uh, might solve the the problems I pointed out in in the 1990s, and things have only gotten worse. And I point out new problems in the in the new book, uh, but you still people really hate uh, this idea uh, that Darwin can't uh, handle uh, can't handle the problems of life. Uh, or that undirected processes can't, at least. They'll, they'll throw Darwin overboard if they can find another materialistic process that could explain things. But nobody can't because clearly, nobody can because uh, clearly the, many, the systems of life are, are purposely designed. So you're just kind of whistling past the graveyard uh, when you deny that. But, but yeah, yeah, I think you, you said that uh, I, uh, I was trying to use the methods of science, and yes, I am, uh, but uh, the problem is that science these days is committed to materialism, and nothing is allowed to uh, interfere with that. So it's it's not, uh, it's not the science or the scientific evidence that's problem. It's philosophy that's the problem. That uh, that science these days is in the grip of, mater of materialism, and the results of of investigations don't fit very well with materialism. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, yeah. That that is that has been my uh, 
my sense too, and for those who, you know, I mean, we talk about materialism on the show a lot, and of course that's the concept that all that exists is mind in, is matter in motion, that there's no purpose, that there's no mind directing uh, the course of, uh, of human affairs, uh, that there's, that there is, uh, only, um, only bits of, only bits of particles out there. And th I guess, you know, you're one of the best, uh, folks to answer this question, but my question is, why is that? Why, why do you think there is such a, uh, opposition to, introducing mind or 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 a I don't want to use or a god into the picture well that's that's a complicated question uh, I know. <laughs> and, and uh, uh, the short answer is well uh, you know there's I can name a couple of factors but uh, it's very uh, complex uh, one is that you know some people just don't want there to be anything other than uh, matter and motion because uh, they think that that would um, subject people to uh, a secondary role somehow that uh, we wouldn't be the masters of our own destiny and and so on um, and there's lots of folks like say Richard Dawkins uh, others who uh, who espouse that view but then there's kind of what I, I've described as uh, professional jealousy in in the biological community. That that is uh, before Darwin, you know, uh, physics and chemistry uh, were were real sciences because they could describe all of their stuff, make up laws, and and all of their reactions or all of the uh, processes they'd talk about would follow those laws and here was poor biology who couldn't couldn't explain you know how a blade of grass grew right. even though it was supposed to be the study of life and when darwin came along i think his biggest appeal to scientists to biologists was that he said hey you know all of this stuff you you can explain within the confines of your own science you don't have to ask uh, you don't have to ask uh, religious authorities, uh, pastors and bishops of the Anglican Church and so on uh, about uh, about life. You can figure it out all for yourself. And that means that biologists are pretty important guys. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's another one. Uh, so there's a, a bunch of different factors. The only factor that's not involved is. Uh, is uh, the evidence? Uh. Yeah, I know. Isn't isn't that amazing? Well, I was going to. I mean, those who who do a little history here, who who, re, who uh, research a little history, which I which I know you've done. You know, I would exactly agree. You know, Darwin really provides a quote unquote scientific response to Genesis, mm. and, and and a lot of it to me is folks. Uh, want to move beyond biblical literalism, and I think they get a little carried away, which is, it, it, to me, it's 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 like a dichotomy where if you are religious, you're therefore a, a believer in the literal wor words of the Bible, and we're and as a modern culture, we're moving beyond that. We don't want to just uh, let myths 
guide our lives. And here you have Darwin with this fancy-sounding theory that explains the evolution of life. So we're going to go with that. And, and it's sort of, to me, it's an overreaction against yeah. the Bible. And now, which leads me to, and that's just my view, but that it, and I still think that's pre present, by the way, and you have, and the leaders uh, of the neo-Darwinian movement, uh, in particular, for example, Dawkins, they just pound uh, this issue. They just pound the creationists, they just pound the, the, the the, you know, the, the Bible, the, they, they uh, underline, uh, like, for example, in Dawkins' book, uh, The God Delusion, they just pound how ridiculous it is to believe in the literal words of the Bible as if that's the opponent. And so it leads me to ask you, where are you uh, in this spectrum? Because you are um, considered to be, I'm looking at a quote in the back of your book here, uh, actually, Stephen Colbert, yeah, said that you're the father of intelligent design. So, so where where are you in this spectrum here? I mean, are you, do you consider yourself an a intelligent designer, or or what? Where do you come down on on what is what is causing the what is causing the design? Uh, okay, uh, that's a great question. Um, I yeah, I'm an uh, scientifically, I'm an intelligent designer in the sense that I certainly, that I think intelligence was required in order to uh, construct life. That is, uh, the sophisticated systems of life just scream design. And design is, you know, many people get confused, but design is an empirical conclusion based on physical evidence. We see the arrangement of the pieces of machinery and we know that it takes an intelligent entity to arrange stuff uh so it's it's i describe in the new book uh why in fact that's a completely empirical uh conclusion i i'm also a lifelong catholic and um catholicism as you know is not uh, a brand is not one it does not require literalism and in, in reading the Bible or interpreting it doesn't require you to think that the earth was you know uh, constructed just six thousand years ago uh, it's it's cool with common sense with all sorts of things so none of that enters into my conclusions um, so on the other hand, if you think about folks like uh, Richard Dawkins, his assumptions of no design enter everywhere in his conclusions. He'll, uh, he'll, um, uh, he and, and others will say that, well, just because we can't explain it now doesn't mean we can't explain it later in terms of unintelligent uh, processes. So uh, I, I think somebody who's open to a mind uh, or a, you know, a, a religious realm uh, has more freedom in this area to uh, follow the evidence wherever it leads, because uh, there are certainly some things that don't require intelligent direction in our world, but uh, maybe not everything. And 
you if you rule it out uh, at the start, uh, then you might be missing a uh, a large chunk of what what in, in fact is is our reality. Well, I'll tell you what what really um, sort of aggra- I don't know if aggravation is the right word, but <laughs> what really bothers me, what what really bothers me is that if if you stay true to the purpose and aims of science and you go where the evidence leads and I will say you know I'm a lawyer it's exactly the same in law you go where the evidence leads so if you go where the evidence leads and you are open-minded and if that evidence leads to the presence of a mind in action then that's where the evidence goes and if, if it turns out that the last 300 years of investigation that your degree in chemistry or physics uh, was 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 based upon an erroneous uh, paradigm, then that's life in the big city. That's the way science works, and I think it is it is troubling that you have a lot of materialists acting like they're part of a religious faith. That's really. Yeah. What I what what I think is is troubling here. Now, uh, it just as you were talking about Dawkins, I I was um, on vacation last week in Europe, and apparently there's this bus. Uh, Dawkins or whoever supports him is paid for a um, sign on these buses in in the UK that, that says something like "God probably doesn't exist, so enjoy your day." And so Dawkins uses the term probably doesn't exist, which I think is really interesting because, because how, you know, so what are you leaving, is he leaving open the possibility? And, and which is, is sort of an interesting way to, to do it. Um, and then you have Thomas Nagel, while I'm on that topic, who has this book that's very good, who says, prob, uh, the title is something like "Materialism is probably not completely true." That's the title. Is probably not completely true. So you have a, or I'm sorry, I think he used the word is 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 almost is almost surely not completely true, or something like that. He equivocates. Yeah. So so you have the the materialists sort of hedging their bets a little bit here, mm. and I, I think that at the end of the day, um, it is more productive. Uh, to keep the keep true to the aims of science, because if folks like you don't, then where do we wind up? Yeah. You know, we wind up just honoring honoring the faith of materialism. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Now, I think Dawkins and his buddies, with the slogan "God probably doesn't exist," are just trying to weasel out of <laughs> the burden of actually making an argument. Uh, that uh, that for that case, and of course, philosophers and theologians have been, you know, arguing about that for for millennia, uh, and yet he doesn't want to actually make a serious academic argument. He just wants to put signs on buses. Yeah. And you know, Thomas Nagel, yeah, that's great. Uh, the book was, I think it's called Mind and Cosmos, and it's got the most wonderful subtitle that I've ever seen. It's called uh, why, uh, why uh, neo-Darwinian 
why the neo-Darwinian explanation of life is almost certainly false. Right, right. right. That was what I was talking about, right. That was what I was talking about. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and of course, for your listeners, Nagel's an atheist. Yeah. Uh, so he's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's not obvious to many really smart people that even ones who are antagonistic to religion, or at least don't want religion to be true, uh, that uh, Darwinian processes or material processes, even non-Darwinian material processes, can explain life. Yeah, and so so we have a we have a this problem here, and it's it's a to me it's the issue of our time. It's why I do this show, which is trying to track the progress of new ideas of open-minded. Uh, thoughts and theories against the orthodoxy, and and I I think that at some point um, we we will reach a tipping point on the on on this whole topic. Now, Darwin is not going to go down easy. Uh, there's there's no I mean I it, I think it's really telling what you said about that you yourself have not seen much change in the 23 years. Um, but there might be hope in other fields. There might be some cascade, for example, cosmology is, is also has its problems, which uh-huh. we won't get into. But I think um, at the end of the day here, Professor, I think you've done um, a, a lot of good in, in really bringing the science to this topic. And so... Um, if there's something that you like to say in closing, uh, you know, you I know you're you're a busy person, but the uh, I know your book I'm sure is is uh, available everywhere. Books are sold, as they say, which is mostly yeah. Amazon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Amazon's the place to go. Yeah. Uh, let's see. In closing, it's that uh, it's interesting. You'd never know it from reading popular media or even much of this science. Uh, official science press, but the results of the last hundred years in science are uh, a really stunning, uh, stunning in how strongly they point uh, to the fact that nature is dependent on something outside of physical nature. It, 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 it is arranged not only life and the cosmos uh, and the results of uh, physics, astronomy, biology, all, uh, pretty much everything that every science uh, it points strongly to the uh, to the requirement for something else, something to have uh, given rise to a coherent, in- intelligible uh, nature and. Uh, one that can host life and, and, and so on. And so next time you see a, a science show on TV that says everything's purposeless or uh, the cosmos is all that is or ever will be, don't believe it. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think, that's, I think that's, that's well put. And at the end of the day, as I said earlier, if the methods of science and open-minded reasoning lead to the presence of a mind in the in the creation of the cosmos or the origin of life, the evolution of life, then that is the way it works. And it could be, and I'm pretty sure it's true, 
that a world with such a mind is a much more inspiring, beneficial, happy place than a world without purpose or mind. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Professor, thank you very much for being here. And once again, pick up a copy of Professor Behe's book, Darwin Devolves. It's a great read, and I think um, everyone could benefit from taking a look at it. We'll see you next week. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.